Very good to be back with you. Great to see you again. I uh, love coming here and uh, enjoying worshipping God together with you folks here at uh, Hamilton. There's my heading. I've been given John 10 from verses 22 to 42 to preach on this morning and uh, doing a bit of research on that uh, in advance of coming here. But uh, the winter of discontent was the phrase that came to me as I was preparing because these aren't the easiest of times that we're living through with war in Ukraine, floods in Pakistan, uh, and the the looming uh, energy and financial crisis, particularly over the winter. We saw bin uh, collections being halted and rubbish piling up in the streets. And uh, the phrase came to mind uh, as I was was preparing for this. Some people, when we hear of all of the bad news coming through, just choose to turn the, the news off altogether and no longer listen to it. And I know one or two people like that. Uh, just block it out for a while, and I suppose that can be healthy, although it's good to be informed as well. But uh, in all of this, we're reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. And I think that that's something that maybe we could just revisit every day if we do feel anxious about the developments that are going on. Why the winter of discontent? Why did that phrase drop into my mind? Because in John chapter 10, the context is, it's the middle of winter. Uh, It's the winter solstice time. And it's the rainy season in Jerusalem. Yes, it does snow in Israel sometimes. Uh, And the shelter of uh, Solomon's colonnade was a good place to be, especially if it was pouring with rain. It's, uh, the winter of discontent is a, a famous line from a soliloquy in, uh, for those of you like background here, Shakespeare's Richard III. That's where it comes from originally, and it was borrowed in 1978 during the Labour government of James Callaghan, when, if you see some of the black and white photographs of 1978, talk about rubbish in the streets, it was really, really bad. Tomorrow we'll hear who the next Prime Minister is going to be, whether she or he, we do not yet know, though rumours abound. I hope there's no messianic expectations of the new Prime Minister, Uh, someone who's going to save the country and the world from all of its problems, because I think there'll be a bit of a letdown if that kind of expectation is there. We're quick to criticise, but we're instructed in God's word to pray, whatever our politics, we are instructed to pray for those who are in authority. And whoever is appointed will certainly need our prayers. But when we look to Jesus, we're looking to an entirely different person, not a politician. And a salvation that Jesus brings that is greater than any politician could ever bring to a nation. We find assurances in the Bible reading this morning, which we're coming to in just a moment. But what assurances are there in this scripture passage in which we can place our trust and find peace? But the context of John 10, this winter of discontent, winter in Solomon's colonnade, we find a description here. And we're going to move to the reading just, uh, just now from John 10. So we've got Solomon's colonnade, by the way, or an artist's impression. Let's uh, read this together. John 10, verse 22. 
Then came the feast of dedi- festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered there around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me It's greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped of their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now the feast or the festival of dedication was established after a successful revolt against the, an empire at the time. For those of you who like a little bit of history here, this was the Seleucid Empire, which was a Greek Syrian empire, and they were a very powerful empire, and and they had a rule rulership over uh, the the Jews. And what they were trying to do under the leadership of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, what they were trying to do was to bring a uniformity of religion and enforce uniformity of a, a Greek Hellenistic religion upon upon the Jews and and everybody else. They were up against trouble trying to force the Jews to to, uh, change their religion. And they went to extreme measures. Antiochus erected a, a statue of Zeus in the temple and he had swine sacrificed on the altar. I mean, this is the very worst thing you can do. in the face of this kind of rebellion. This was in 167 BC. So by the time of 164 BC, 
the rebellion uh, reached its height and it was successful. Now, you see there on the, on the screen a picture of a menorah. And the festival or the Feast of Dedication, which was celebrated and is celebrated uh, today, we know as Hanukkah. Uh, the menorah would normally have seven candles, but this one has eight and one in the center. This is the Hanukkah menorah. And it was celebrated because the, the story goes that the oil that lit the lamp in the temple lasted for a full eight days during the time, miraculously lasted for a full eight days during the time of celebration. And uh, so this was remembered every year. So here's the context. Jesus in winter, during the Feast of Dedication, people remembering uh, a... a the uh, um, rebellion against um, the, the uh, Seleucids being successful. Um, and it was Judas Maccabeus, is the name I was trying to recall there, who was leading this rebellion. That They're remembering all of this. And here is Jesus, who is he? Isn't he the Messiah? Is walking in Solomon's colonnade, and he gets boxed in, literally surrounded by a group of people who have said, let's sort this out once and for all. That's the picture that we've got here. And so they ask him this question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, this was not an easy, simple question for Jesus to answer. Because if Jesus had uh, said to them, uh, that if he had uh, persuaded them that he was the kind of Messiah that they were looking at, somebody like Judas Maccabeus, who would lead a political rebellion and deliver from the exploitation and power and oppression of the Romans, which was the popular idea of a Messiah that was going around, then uh, they may, as we find in John chapter 6, after Jesus had uh, performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They might, could have taken him by force to try and make him king if he had misled them in that way, but he wasn't that kind of Messiah. He wasn't the political one that they were expecting. They had got it wrong. Their, their concept of the Messiah was, uh, was, um, was, was flawed. But here, Jesus, if he answered the question uh, in, in the well, the way he answered the question to say that he was actually the son of God, claiming deity, was triggering another kind of reaction that if he didn't handle that one carefully, he could have been executed prematurely. So it wasn't easy. And of course, the reaction that he gets from the people is that they pick up stones to stone him. I think there is a popular view of Jesus today that goes around, that even infiltrates our thinking as Christians. Uh, some, I've met some Christians who haven't been long in the faith, and things go wrong in their lives, and they just think that God has let them down. But it's almost as though God is someone who is there to put sticking plaster on our lives all the time, like a, a kind grandparent, where, where we fall over, they're going to kiss it better and put the st sticking plaster on it. It's not like that. This is a tough world that we live in. As we were being reminded earlier on, it's a fallen world. They're talking about the fall where things went, went wrong within the world. 
the kind of salvation that Jesus comes to bring us is not to cure all of our ills in a fallen world. It is a spiritual salvation. It is restoring us into a wonderful relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Where he hears our voice in prayer. We hear his. What provokes his listeners most of all are these words. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. New Testament, uh, in New Testament times and today, opinion over Jesus is divided. We have uh, a slide here. Mad, bad, or God. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. And in every generation it has been the same. Opinion over who Jesus is is divided amongst the population. In the 19th century, Rabbi Duncan put it this way. Here's the quote. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. And Watchman Nee, he was the 20th century writer, in his book, The Normal Christian Life, said something uh, similar. He said, first, if he claims to be God, and yet in fact is not, he is either a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of these three possibilities. Where are you with this? Or you, if you're listening online here with this? Is he mad, bad, or God? You have to make a choice out of the three. But look at the evidence. Look at the evidence in the Bible. The wonderful uh, evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the transformation in the lives of those who put their faith in him. Jesus says to them uh, here, his listeners, do not believe unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Why is it that some people who are convinced about the facts and have looked at the evidence and think this is actually quite convincing, choose not to put their faith in Jesus Christ? Sometimes it is a decision of convenience rather than a, a decision over which we have conviction. In John 3, we read, Everyone who does evil 
hates the light and does not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The themes of light and darkness that we have here, they, they run right through John's gospel, even in this passage here, in the darkness of, of the winter solstice period of the year, we have a festival of, known as a festival of lights too, with the lightings of the, of, of the candle. People prefer darkness to light. Our hearts can be like that. We often, people often, don't want to change their ways because it's just not convenient. This certainly would have been true of the Jews. They would be thinking about all of the things that they could lose if they put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Ask somebody in the Islamic world, in a family, if they've had a dream in which the Messiah, the risen Lord, has revealed himself to them as the, the prophet, the Messiah, in a dream, and they want to put their faith in him, or they've heard the gospel in some other way, to come out, as it were, in that kind of community might mean being stoned to death. But it would certainly probably mean lo losing family because it, of the nationality and identity that is so associated with Islam in some communities to become a Christian, to believe in, in Isa as the Messiah, in, in that kind of a context is very, very costly indeed. No matter how convinced somebody may be to put their faith in him and to live openly a Christian life might lead to their death or at least to have to move out of the situation uh, altogether. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in these difficult parts of the world. It was not easy for a religious Jew, particularly a religious Jewish leader to put their faith in him. And we can be a little bit like that too. Fears can get the better of us. But then when we do put our trust in him, we might fear what we're going to lose, but we discover when we put our trust in him, we've gained so much more. And it's wonderful when we take the step of faith and put our trust in him, you know what that's like, many of you here, who have, uh, remember the moment when you thought, I've got a decision to make, I've got to, resp I've got to respond to this gospel. Am I going to become a Christian or not? And you choose to, thinking, this is crazy, I'm going to lose everything. And you step into a new dimension of life with God where you've gained so much more than you ever thought you would. And it's only in retrospect, after having opened up our hearts to the grace of God, that we can look back and see that God was at work all the time, bringing us to that place of faith and helping us over the line as we've opened up our lives to him. What assurances are there, then, in this passage for us as Christians? For those who've taken the step, who've crossed the line, who've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Firstly, believers hear the voice of God. Go to the next slide there. 
Believers hear the voice of God. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus says. Clearly, if they listen, they hear. We hear. Studies show that sheep are more sophisticated than we think. That People might think that sheep are idiotic creatures and they do get themselves into all kinds of bother. But there is a sophistication about their social and emotional recognition skills. There's a mother up here saying, that one's mine. Of all the children, you wouldn't have been able to distinguish all of the voices, but a mother can recognise the voice of a child. And so, here, sheep can recognise the voice of the shepherd. My sheep, listen to my voice. For those whom the Lord is calling, we hear that call. We know when God is speaking to us, whether through a sermon or a Bible reading or a tract or a friend. We know that tugging on the heart, as it were, towards becoming a believer. God as shepherd of the people is a a motif that we find right through the Old Testament. And here is another claim for Jesus' divinity. My sheep, he's... he's, uh, describing himself as a shepherd, the shepherd of the people. They hear my voice. John Piper puts it this way. He translates this. My elect are enabled by God to hear the truth, the true shepherd, when the gospel is preached. I don't know whether you are there Or you've been there a few times and you've heard the gospel, you've never crossed the line, you've never actually taken the step. I never remember as a boy in Rill, as a teenager, hearing someone preach from Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I remember as a young man, uh, well, not actually a young man, I was probably 15 years old, a teenager, in a Saturday night meeting, praying that prayer without giving away anything on my face as I bowed the knee with everybody else, because I was terrified that one of my friends would know that God, I felt God speaking to me. I knew you might know what that feels like. I didn't really follow through at that time, and I regret that I didn't follow through as I should. It was only later, after a few ruinous years, that I came to faith in the Saviour, really wholeheartedly, 100%. But you might be in that position or have been in that position and you just haven't had the courage to step across the line. I'm encouraging you today to do that, to step across the line, uh, to abandon all your fears and all your worries and just put your trust in Jesus. Wow, you've got a, a life of discovery ahead of you. If that's you, and that's the step you take, something you will never regret. I know them, Jesus says. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. We are fully known by God. There's nothing that we can hide from God. Psalm 139 puts it this, puts it this way. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. This is David's prayer in the, in the psalm. You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise, you know when I go out, you know when I come in, you know if I'm far away, if, I'm in, uh, if I 
if I try and run away, I can't, I can't hide from you. You know everything about me. It's scary that God knows everything about us. But more so, it is comforting that God knows everything about us because God knows everything about us and still loves us. Remember, there's things about our lives we would not share with our best friends. The things that we have thought or done over a lifetime, they remain our secrets. They remain our shame. We are all sinners, no matter how we may dress up on a Sunday. Uh, or love to think of ourselves in the best light. We all get things wrong. We do things that are wrong and shameful. God knows that. He still loves us. Isn't it remarkable? Loved us enough, as we saw earlier on. Um, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the love of God and he loves us still. Whatever our failings, we are assured, we are assured of the care of the good shepherd of the sheep. All importantly, Jesus says, they follow me. It's taking that first step as a follower of Jesus and then turning our lives constantly towards conformity with the will of God. That's what repentance is all about. It's only as we trust in Jesus as our sin bearer do we receive the Holy Spirit and cleansing from our sin. And so we are saved from the judgment to come. I give them eternal life, he says. It's life from above. And they will never perish. They will never perish. I wonder if this is what Paul has in mind when he writes in the book of Romans, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Perhaps so. Because here Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, I and the Father are one. That word snatch is like a wolf might snatch a sheep out of the hands of the shepherd. Ain't going to happen. John 10 re records the response of his opponents who prepare to stone him to death and of Jesus' words to them. You're making yourself out to be God. You know, this is why we're picking up the stones. And Jesus then refers them to Psalm 82, where we find that ordinary people are called gods. Judges and those who receive the word of God are described as gods, with a small g, of course. And this without being blasphemy. Jesus has said, said well, these judges and these people, they're called gods. And what about me? I come and I do the works of my father as the son of God. So why are you accusing me of blasphemy? 
This is his argument. But they are stubborn and resistant. And he says to them, if you won't believe me, look at the evidence, the miracles, the healings, the power of God. Uh, that was the, all of the confirming evidence that he was indeed the son of God. Look at the evidence, he says. I was in the Westwood Baptist Church, which is my home church at the moment, uh, and I was hearing uh, a testimony. Ah, oh, it's wonderful to hear a testimony of somebody getting baptised. Uh, and he'd uh, gone through a, a, he'd actually gone through the Alpha course uh, that they were running in, in Westwood, and he'd come to faith uh, through that. And he said that, he said before the service, he'd asked, could it, would it be possible if the broadcasting of that the, they were doing of the service could be stopped while he gave his testimony? Because he was afraid that he would break down as he was sharing his testimony and he knew his family and friends were listening. And then he changed his mind. He said, no, let the broadcast go ahead. Ah, oh, just hearing of someone who had encountered God in a powerful way, in a life-transforming way, was so refreshing. It almost drew a sense of the presence of God to the service as I heard that story being recounted. I was chatting to him um, last Sunday, and he, he was saying to me, uh, one of his friends had said to him, what is it about you? You've changed. And he, at first his reaction was, oh, no, 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 I haven't changed at all. Uh, but people were beginning to notice the change that had taken place when he'd become a Christian. And rather than just denying that he had changed, he's now telling people why he's changed. It's wonderful to have a story like that to tell. It's the evidence. And you and I see that evidence. You know, there's somebody who's watching online. You might see the evidence of the power and grace of God in someone else that has transformed them from who they were to who they become in Jesus. And it's the evidence that Jesus is real, that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is alive, and that he continues to call people to be his followers. My sheep, listen to my voice, he says. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep, listen to my voice. I hope you're listening to his voice. Maybe you're sitting on the fence. Today would be a good day to get off that fence and start following with the people of God. Isaiah 40, verse 11, reads this. He tends, I love this picture. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. It's good to remember this. I began this morning by outlining some of the troubles and difficulties of our world and some of the things that we may fear. I wonder sometimes if we get too attached to the things of this world. And I would differentiate between the essentials, things that we really need, 
and the non-essentials of life, the future may mean that we'll be letting go some of the non-essentials. None of us would like to lose our security, our, our comfort of our homes, the things that we enjoy. But we're all too aware of the people of Ukraine and the thousands of people in Pakistan who've, whose livelihoods have gone uh, and who are really destitute and, and, and in great, great trouble and need. At this time, in this part of the world, our needs are not on that scale. Though we may worry about winter fuel bills, etc., and making ends meet. Of the, the non-essentials, perhaps we can learn to adapt. And if we're losing them, to be content. But of the essentials, there is a place for trusting in God. And of sharing with one another. Liz and I learned this when we were missionaries in Nigeria. How adaptable we can be. If you've ever, ever lived in a tropical part of the country and you're not used to it. Hey, with no air conditioning and <coughs> windows open and all kinds of flying ants and everything else. Fluttering into your, into your living room and scattering their wings across the floor. So much so that you can hardly brush them up with a little broom brush that's made from a palm tree mosquitoes and disease it's a way of life for, for many it's not it's not particularly comfortable but we you can adapt without cheese and without chocolate yes you can adapt to these things um, and still be happy uh, yeah there may be difficult times ahead but when we look at this passage here eternity is mentioned here we're not looking for a savior who will um, answer all of our questions and meet all of our needs in this life. Well, meet all of our wants in this life. We'll trust him to meet all of our needs. Have we heard and listened to the call of the Saviour? Then we are known and loved by God. Have we turned to follow Jesus? Then we have eternal life. And we are held securely in the Father's hand. And whatever challenges life brings us, whether we do have a winter of discontent, whatever difficulties we face, we should remember today, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing.